This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Bishop Fox, the gold standard in software security testing, code reviews, and penetration testing. Visit us at bishopfox.com to learn more about the services we offer and check out the careers page to see what job opportunities we have. Welcome back to the Security Conversations podcast. My guest this week is Robert M. Lee, founder and CEO of Dragos, or is it Dragos? Yeah, Dragos. Yep. Founder and CEO of Dragos. Dragos is a player in the uh, industrial control systems, ICS, SCADA, security space. Um, you guys have been making a lot of noise, just got some funding, getting everything ramped up. Uh, I want to start off with a Washington Post headline. Uh, Dragos is <laughs> on the lookout for malware that can kill. Help me understand what yeah. you help me understand what you do, and then we can get into a conversation about what's real and what's hype. But what is Dragos no, exactly? What do you guys do? What are you selling? Yeah, of course. So the team itself is really focused on the threat detection and response space for industrial. And what I what I'm proud of, especially with the team, is a lot of our folks. Actually, most of our folks are all industrial security practitioners. So it had that focus of people that have been in this field a while, um, doing response, finding the threats, sort of coming over to, to figure out what should we do for the community. And and so we we are like a normal vendor in the sense that we have a technology, we have our services, and we have our Intel focus. I think the the Washington Post piece was, uh, it was very kind. Uh, it started out just as a story about Trisis or Triton. Um, and the funny thing is, to your point, about hype and, and sort of FUD is, is I've been one of those people my entire career to point out and put down the crazy headlines and call out the hype. And I had a, somebody reach out to me recently on the headline and say, well, you know, Rob, aren't you, aren't you hyping this up? And, and my response was, well, first of all, I don't choose headlines, but right, second of all, actually, yeah. But second of all, the reason I'm not saying anything about it is because this malware, I mean, it, it was literally, intended to kill people. So we're lucky nobody died, but uh, the uncomfortable truth with this one is is it actually was really bad. Uh, and and so I, I've been a person that I, I hope throughout my career people can look at and go, okay, well, if Rob's taking it seriously, maybe it's maybe it's serious. But unfortunately, there still is a ton of hype and, and craziness around anything industrial, which I, I attribute a lot to the fact that we have a lot of good people so it's it's good folk throughout the security and, and 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 sort of policy communities that are just care a lot about infrastructure and and are worried about their way of life. And so I don't I don't think anybody wakes up and tries to be a jerk about these things. I, I think sometimes though it's just a misunderstanding of of the actual risk versus what's really being done. And so it leads people to think that if they don't scream to the hills about it, you know, that, well, we can't wake people up and we're going to die. And it's like, come down, dude. You know, like it, the threats are bad, but they're not that bad. Um, you know, we will be okay. That's kind of the, the, the message you kind of have to capture. Let's back up a little bit. Why should people listen to you and pay attention to you? Uh, give me a little bit of your background. The only thing I know is that you worked at the NSA at some point. Yeah. So I, I, I'd say choose your, uh, choose who you listen to carefully. Uh, so I won't necessarily advocate that people pay attention to me per se, but uh, for, yeah, for my own career. So I started out in the Air Force, uh, focused my entire, really my entire career was at the National Security Agency. Um, there I built and led one of the first missions looking at nation states breaking into industrial sites. So built up a lot of the internal knowledge in the U.S. government, um, especially on the, the National Security Agency side on on who these threat actors were, uh, what they were doing, sort of the methods and tradecraft of breaking into industrial, showing that it was different than what we were seeing in sort of the corporate or information technology space. 
that a lot of what was going on in industrial networks was truly different and needed a different approach. And that was just um, focused on what was coming out of nation states. This was not uh, anything, because I'm hearing just in peripherally a lot of background noise around, you know, mercenary groups also involved in this activity and uh, doing extortions. You know, I'm in your network. I could do this, pay X, Y, Z. I don't know how much of that is true. It's kind of like the rumblings you hear in the corridors of a security conference. Um, but yeah, yeah, I think, yeah, that's a tough one. Because I, 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 I don't like to dismiss the possible, but I very much like to ground what I talk about in the reality. And so what the reality of the situation is, is we do see nation states doing this, um, targeting industrial networks specifically, not just infrastructure companies, not the enterprise networks of those. There's plenty of those that do that, but specifically targeting um, the industrial networks. We do see kind of your mercenary groups training and funding or not funding, training and, and equipping and you know, selling exploits and things to these teams that are national teams. And we are starting to see some private sector companies for you know, all intents and purposes are mercenary groups doing targeting. But it's, it's never reached the level where I've been concerned about non-nation state actors in a considerable way. And so I, you know, I got asked that today, actually, I went and talked to a number of congressional staffers and tried to educate them on, on what the risk is and what's not, because they're all freaking out um, and, and trying to tell them, you know, actually, our infrastructure is pretty resilient. <clears throat> and, and, you know, that same question comes up, can ISIS take down the power grid? You know, these, these kind of questions come up. And, and again, you, you kind of want to shy away from saying like, ah, it's not possible. But what is the correct answer to that specific question? Yeah, the, the answer that I give is in, in my assessment of what we've seen, uh, it's not they're not capable of doing so. Uh, the the threat actors that are non nation state, that are non well funded groups for cyber or you know quote unquote cyber specifically, um, they, they don't really reach our our view. We don't really see those on the radar. Um, it doesn't again doesn't necessarily mean that we shouldn't be mindful and think towards it. But we've got plenty of threats today that we do need to prioritize and think about. So I don't I don't want to think too much of of what could you know 15 years from now be an issue. We, we've got issues now and for the next five that we should be thinking about. But there are I'm multiple sorry. threat there are multiple threat actors properly resourced and motivated to do that. That's a fact, right? That uh, yeah, yeah, and absolutely. it's the usual suspects. I, I don't know if you want to get into to detail, but um, yeah, I mean I think it's, it's a think reality. It's sorry, sorry to interrupt, but it, just to get the question out, is this it's a reality that this can be done, uh, and and the the tools, the the state of state of play in the infrastructure is uh, set up where this actually can be done, and we know that adversaries are interested in doing this. Is that fair? Yeah, it's it's absolutely fair to say, and I think you know where the where the kind of the nuance comes into it is a phishing email delivered to an energy company should not elicit headlines that the power grid is under a cyber attack that, that's not appropriate and we shouldn't be so quick to say ah well i found that they're using default passwords on controllers or there's they're using windows me oh my gosh like how how does this thing even run still you know i mean that that's where it's just silly but to say that there are nation states who are consistently targeting infrastructure and have the capability to do impact that's fair it's it's completely real and we've seen these attacks before i mean ukraine 2015 ukraine 2016 um, and the middle east uh this past year 
it, it's we this isn't theoretical. We see these types of attacks happen. It's just we don't need to freak out about everything, and that's kind of the balance. Right. So when when people are posting screenshots, showdown screenshots on Twitter showing uh, some plant with a port open here or 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 some. Uh, uh, some screenshot that suggests that, oh my God, this thing is hackable. That's not necessarily accurate. And you mentioned someone someone clicking on a, on a spear phishing email in a traditional network um, is not necessarily presenting a significant risk to an ICS thing. And why is that? What... Yeah, absolutely. So if we think about enterprise networks, if you have an adversary that gets a reliable communications channel in and out of an environment and can get root privileges on you know your domain controller or windows system it's for all intents and purposes you know game over like they're they're on that system they're pulling whatever they want off of it you know sure they can't just spread throughout the entire network you know defenders still have an an opportunity to disrupt them but if what they want is on the system they're on and they have a way to get to it and out without being detected and, and have the privileges required they they can move pretty quickly and we see that in an industrial environment, getting all that kind of access is just step one. So just because I give you, I could I could take your typical hacker, walk them into a power plant, sit them down at the system, give them 100% privileges and say, okay, now make the lights blink. And it's not as trivial as people think because we have, we have physics, we have real world environments and it's not good to see human machine interfaces with, you know, connected up to the internet it's not ideal and we're not saying that that's okay but just because that happened doesn't mean that you can turn off the power um, there's a lot more that goes into it sometimes for no other reason than physics and protection and safety equipment but sometimes too just because it's an extremely complicated system and it's not about an individual component it's about the system of systems that make up that industrial control system and in many cases they're so unique uh from installation to installation is uh, that you really an adversary really has to have amazing knowledge and have mapped out exactly what's being used, how, and, you know, they're using these really, uh, uh, in some cases, archaic protocols, and, uh, and, and they have to manipulate their own environment in such a way where it's not, it's not like you can spray something at, win- in the traditional sense, you can spray something at Windows, and Windows looks, for the most part, the same. When you go into an industrial plant and you spray a piece of malware there, they're, they're, in a sense, they, there's no monoculture there uh, in terms of what those networks look like. That's that's from the outside, uh, my perception of how these things are set up. Is that accurate? Well, it's, it's absolutely accurate. And, and even when they are. So let's say we have a substation in Baltimore, Maryland, and we have an electric substation in um, Washington, D.C. Geographically close, uh, let's say they're all ADB equipment or you know, Schweitzer equipment, or whatever. We could say that they're exactly the same, which is unlikely, but let's just pretend that they're exactly the same. The integration of that equipment for the physical process, the physical environment that they're dealing with is now going to be different. And so it, just because I know how to reliably disrupt the one substation does not guarantee me reliable disruption on the second. So you can get scalability in attacks. It's just not a guarantee and it's also not as easy as people think. I, I actually usually sort of measure three variables. And the first variable is complexity of the system. 
if we're talking the power grid, which there's multiple power grids, but when we're talking, quote unquote, the power grid, the complexity of that thing and all the components that go into it is really high. And you're talking thousands of companies. When we talk about a generation site, you know, in uh, a power company, that's less complex in comparison, right? The second variable is with the attack we want to achieve, what's the impact? A low impact might be an hour of outage. Uh, uh, high impact might be physical destruction of a transformer for you know three weeks, three months of outages, you know whatever. Uh, and then the last one is sort of the scalability of it. Am I talking DC or am I talking the eastern interconnect of the grid? And and what I've long positioned is as the complexity of the system increases, and the complexity depends on the various components that go into the system, the, the scale of the system, as well as maybe even adding security to increase the complexity. But as the complexity of the system increases, your ability to do impact it, it exponentially becomes more difficult. And then to achieve that same impact over the same scale is sort of that exponential of an exponential. So if you and I wanted to grab a couple people and cause a power outage in Toronto, I guarantee you we could get some folks together that are really sharp, get drunk and go take out power in Toronto for an hour. But if we wanted to take out power for a month in Toronto, no way. If we wanted to take out the entire you know portion of Canada for an hour, uh, still no way. You're talking long-term operations, well-funded, a lot of different components that go into that. Um, so I, there are black swan kind of events that we're concerned about uh, that are realistic but they're way more difficult than people give them credit for. And a lot of that's, to be honest, um, not only that because it's difficult for the adversaries, but also because of the resiliency of the infrastructure that we have. Now, and I'll, I'll pause after the statement, but that does not necessarily translate to every part of the world. The American power grid is consistently more reliable and resilient and built more security into it than the power grid in Cameroon and Niger. Like it, it's, it's going to be different. So it's not just, you know, just cause Rob said your power grid is okay. doesn't mean the cookie factory down the street is okay, but there still is this balance that we had to have. But even here, when people talk of you, you know, you talk about resilience and, and, and a certain level of maturity, but yet we read in the headlines that, uh, you know, everything is wide open to attack. We're sitting ducks. Uh, again, even if we, if, even if we put aside the hype cycle, uh, you, I see a ton of presentations at Black Hat every year or at Cansec West about just how, um, how way back, how far behind uh, industrial control systems as it relates to security, how far behind it is as, uh, compared to, say, just regular Windows operating system or Mac operating system. How do you, how do you balance those two statements with... Resiliency, we're unlikely to see this kind of really massive catastrophic attack uh, with these constant messages that we are uh, sitting ducks. Yeah, so I think, I mean, I think there is a little bit of um, self-defeatism in the security community. You know, I, I hear this all the time about, well, the attacker only has to get one thing right. And defenders have to protect against everything. And that's that's stupid. That's not actually how operations work. Your, your adversary has to reliably do the entire effect and through their entire you know, chain of events reliably without being detected. Um, the, the defenders have to actually detect only one step and then pivot the investigation. I mean, there, there's a 
there's all sorts of cliche statements out there that are just crap to begin with. But when you go into ICS, it gets even more ridiculous at times because the the what matters to IT security is not necessarily the same of what matters to ICS security. Um, so there's every year a Black Hat presentation about, look at these new zero-day vulnerabilities that we found in this product. And so a lot of these presentations, and I'm not trying to put them down, there's some really good research that comes out, but a lot of these presentations focus on product security. And they're completely correct that the product security of your typical ICS equipment manufacturer is years behind somebody like Windows. It, as a matter of fact statement, it is absolutely correct. But just because you can get an exploit on a controller made by Siemens doesn't mean you have any knowledge of the industrial process. It doesn't mean you can do anything with it. So, so it's not it's not about product security. It's about the entire ICS security. I think that's what trips people up. Just because your product is insecure doesn't mean anything about your industrial process. We actually published that out previous this year. I took a shot at the vulnerabilities in general where he found out that 64% of the vulnerabilities that came out in 2017, 64% were completely useless. That doesn't the vulnerability, mean... it, it, it's just useless to an attacker to be able to use. That's really, really interesting, 64%. But that is, does that mean a, a, a defender in one of those environments should just turn a blind eye to vulnerability reports? No, I think that there's some vulnerabilities that are extremely impactful. You know, the, a vulnerability where I can, from the enterprise network, get remote access to a control system, sort of bridge that gap, if you will, or, uh, something like that can be extremely impactful. So, so there's vulnerabilities that matter, especially along the lines of things like access, because um, the access is that first step. But what I, what I try to encourage the community is don't just chase the latest research. Don't just chase the latest thing. Think through these things. Because we know, right? So if we take that number, 64% were completely trash. There's no, there's no nice way to say it. There's, it's completely trash. If you know that, then that doesn't mean don't patch. It just means, you know, 36% of them might have been interesting to you in your environment. You should think more intelligently about which ones actually matter to me, do the risk understanding, and then, and then focus your resources where it matters instead of wasting resources effectively on that 64%. Is that easy to spot? Is it easy to pinpoint which, which, which third of the total you have to pay attention to? I don't think it's trivial, but I think it's definitely doable. Uh, a good security team that understands their industrial process can go through and figure out which ones do or don't matter. As an example, there was one vulnerability that said, you know, if somebody has physical access to a human machine interface and they run this software vulnerability, then they will get access from the HMI to a PLC. So that, that doesn't make any sense because the HMI is automatically connected up to the PLC. That's its entire job. So I don't need a vulnerability for that. And also if I've got physical access, I've got, I've got other issues than worrying about somebody running a software exploit on my HMI. So it, it's in multiple ways that that given vulnerability didn't matter. So it, some of them were common sense. Um, but what happens, especially in the industrial community, is we get sort of regulations or we get consultants or we get people that bring IT security knowledge into ICS. And some of it is relatable. But not all of it is something you can just copy and paste. And so, you know, even with regulations, they're told you must patch every vulnerability that comes out, which is actually converse to the reality of the situation. Right. And it's not practical. Does the ICS Correct. world have the same problems, uh, the same skill shortage around security that the rest of the, the security industry have? By far. So the, uh, you know, you just mentioned you can't just, are, but... 
You just mentioned you just what? can't transplant a guy from a traditional sense into there and just the, 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 the same concept doesn't apply. Um, no, I, I'm doesn't. just trying to think uh, you about can, stuffing you those. You can translate them. Yeah, you can, you can bring skills over, but you have to adapt. So I'll, I'll give you an example. Uh, and, and I'm going to use her by name because I think very highly of her, so I hope she doesn't get mad at me. But, but Leslie Carhart uh, was someone we hired who is an amazing incident responder, well-known and well-liked in the community, really, really, really top-notch. Uh, and she, her, she was really concerned coming over. She's like, well, you guys are do all this ICS stuff. I don't, I don't really know ICS. Like I've been in and out of these environments before, but I'm, I'm not an ICS expert. I'm like, don't worry. You've got investigation skills. You've got the ability to pivot between data sets to tell a story and, and answer questions. Like you're, you've got great skills, you can adapt. And so for Leslie, when we brought her onto the team, we didn't send her and say, all right, well, go to the power company and do the instant response. You know, it, it was much more of almost treating her like she was junior in the sense of having her side saddle with analysts that do ICS and working side by side. And over not even a long period of time, she was able to figure out what does and doesn't translate to adapt her skills appropriately, to figure out where her gaps were to go research and, and read up and understand what was needed in those environments to the point now where she's awesome and, and she's a true rock star and, and she's going to be one of the best, you know, ICS sensor responders we've seen. And so I don't think that it's as big as a gap as people make it out to be, but it's a gap and you have to treat it as such instead of just jumping in thinking oh, all the skills translate the the, uh, the official numbers always give me kind of heartburn because, you know, it's not like somebody went around and did like a census, but supposedly the official numbers are around five to 600 people in North America with ICS cybersecurity, uh, cybersecurity expertise. So not necessarily someone just sitting in the position at a power company, but somebody who understands the industrial side and understands security. We're talking in the hundreds. So that's that's a huge issue for our community, not only because we don't necessarily have all the skills we need, to answer this challenge. But one of the things that I'm concerned with is we have a number of people who can talk very loudly uh, and command an audience that may not actually have the experience to speak. And in an industry full of or sort of much less people to call them out, much less people with experience, it's a, it's a lot harder to, to realize for people. So I'm actually really concerned with sort of misinformation in this community. You... Uh... Imagine I'm an outsider. I don't know much about the uh, the industrial control uh, malware landscape or uh, attack landscape, but I imagine that uh, you know the ones we hear about in the news media and the ones that make a lot of noise are like like you mentioned uh, Ukraine attacks and some Triton and some of the other things. I imagine there's another uh, subset of attacks, like a, a a category of attacks that just does information gathering that. Uh, doesn't necessarily get the headlines. Is there a lot of that happening where there's just one small category of attacks just doing uh, espionage, collection of information, just mapping what the infrastructure looks like, and that's that's all the mission entails. Uh, they're not really interested in taking taking it offline or, or, or doing any sort of physical damage. But talk to me about what percentage of actual attacks based on based on your visibility actual attacks is is you know this subset of yeah so i think when you look at all of the threat actors in the world and sort of the way that we track them as a community 
Um, I think Microsoft put the numbers, I think uh, Kaspersky folks put the numbers as well, around 320, 350 or so groups, if you will, doing these doing operations. If you look at the ones that target infrastructure companies in general, not necessarily industrial, but like an energy company in general, as an example, you're getting down into like the 30s to 50s. But if you look at the ones that are targeting industrial systems at those companies, actually bridging into the industrial networks, specifically targeting those, um, we've only ever heard about one or two at a time. You know, Sandworm has been around for years and, and, and Dragonfly for years. And and my company, when we spun up, we have a very large sort of intelligence focus and brought all these ICS Intel people and said, okay, let's let's go figure it out. Let's Let's find some real numbers. And so in this past year, we've been able to find seven such groups. We didn't know about these groups before as a community. So we went from one or two a year to now we know of at least seven. And my own statement in that is to say that this is a small representation. Because one, we're mostly operating in North America and the Middle East. So it's a small representation anyways, geographically. But also, there's a lot of other places to look and, and places to go find stuff. So I, I think that there's much more than the community realizes. And these seven teams that we're already tracking, each were compromising dozens, if not hundreds, of companies. Usually we're the dozens, though, um, per team of going out and targeting these infrastructure sites and stealing off information, just as you listed out, that they're not turning off the power, they're not disrupting the manufacturing line, but they're stealing information. Some of it is industrial espionage. If you wanna steal a manufacturing trade secret, it's not gonna be from the enterprise networks, it's gonna be actually in the controllers where the logic is loaded for how to make that widget or that pharmaceutical or the recipe. Um, but we also see activity that's concerning for future capability, if I was going to create a capability to cause disruption or some level of knowledge to do that, there's things you need to steal. Screenshots of the HMI to understand how it's logically laid out. Um, engineering drawings to figure out how it's actually laid out. Um, processes, story, and information to figure out you know, the, the physical process itself and what it's interacting with with your digital and analog equipment. You know, there's, there's, there's information that's not necessarily valuable for espionage, but you would need for disruptive purposes. And we see a couple of those groups stealing that level of information as well. So in the assessments we've made of folks, it's, yes, there's a, there's a handful of, of teams and growing that are doing information stealing. Some of it is espionage of sort of a corporate and, and manufacturing style. And economic some of espionage. it is prep, economic espionage, absolutely. And, and some of it is preparatory work whether or not they ever intend to do anything with it or whether or not they, they have the maturity to do anything with it is a different story, but it is absolutely the type of information that we're concerned with for capability development. And you're viewing that as like a, a, a stage one of a potential future attack. Because if you look at the documentation for Stuxnet, which is probably one of the most well-understood, well, from a layman's perspective, well-understood, um, uh, let's call it an attack, cyber attack, uh, a lot of that was this stage one information gathering, just understanding what was in that plant that they wanted to uh, uh, sabotage. So, so you view this subset of attacks, uh, this this basic information gathering, this passive uh, type attack as you, you, you can't discount it as something that could create damage because it's just it could be just stage one of a, a, a planned mission. That's correct. Actually, that's exactly what we call it. So um, years ago, a, a friend of mine who's well-known in the ICS community, Mike Asante, uh, and I wrote a paper titled The ICS Cyber Kill Chain. So it took a Lockheed Martin's uh, model, which 
gets a lot of flack, I think, sometimes because of the way that marketing people use it. But it's actually a really good model in terms of a uh, classification schema to sort of tag data. Um, and we said, look, that the kill chain model is good and all, um, but it's it's really IT focused. Let's let's extend it out and understand what it means to ICS. And well, what does that look like? Yeah, so we put things into a stage one and stage two. So basically your classic IT kill chain is stage one. And when they start stealing off the type of data to progress to a stage two, then there's a development phase where they're developing a new capability or knowledge specific to that industrial environment. There's a testing phase where they have to actually make sure it works. I mean, you can't really just uh, you know pray and spray. Uh, there's a redelivery component where they've actually got to get this new capability or themselves with this new knowledge back into the environment. And then there's the actual sort of installation and modification of either uh, malicious capability like malware or a modification in terms of using systems against itself, like in Ukraine 2015. And then there's the actual attack. Uh, and so we, we absolutely break it up, just like you said, stage one versus stage two. And so the question a lot of times is, is this stage one activity or is it stage one activity that could reasonably lead to a stage two effect? And when we see that they're stealing off the information that could reach into a stage two effect, that's where we get concerned. That's when you want to have a more serious conversation about what could happen. And, and you try to figure out what that means for your community. And, and we saw this in 2017, two different groups um, operating under sort of the uh, intelligence model of two different uh, nation states in our assessment. Um, we're, we're in industrial environments specifically doing that stage one that leads to stage two type effects in U.S. infrastructure. That's where people get upset. And that's easy to spot if you have the tools, security tools and the skills internally uh, to spot what is what is stage one, what is econo- economic espionage, what is uh, something that will that could potentially be used. Is that something easy to spot? Are there, and again, explain it like I'm five because I know nothing about this stuff. Uh, are there, no, I, I, think are, it, I think it is. Are there socks internally where there's like uh, computer screens everywhere? Are they living in this assumed compromise world uh, where, okay, we are compromised, but we can contain and limit damage and, and use our resources wisely to figure out uh, whether it's stage one heading into stage two or just economic espionage? Is that something easy to spot? Is that how uh, defenders are setting up their infrastructure to spot? Yeah, I think it. I personally, I don't think it's trivial, but I think it's. I think it's definitely doable. So that's where I usually like to joke around with people and say, "Defense is doable. It's not. It's not easy. It's not guaranteed, but it's doable." And and so a lot of the infrastructure folks are are doing that. So I, I would say that still the sort of elites of the industry, though, that's your top ten, bridging into like top twenty percent now, which is amazing to see. Um, where you have folks really taking it seriously, starting to think about how to do network monitoring specific to industrial environments, um, how to think about it differently, maybe even employing some industrial specific skill sets and, and employees. Um, I, I even have some companies we work with that have an, an OT or operations technology specific security operations center, where it's not all the screens and all the craziness and the duplication of effort, but it's you know three or four folks that are dedicated to security operations for industrial. So we're definitely seeing the community move that direction, but... That's that's where I push back and say, well, we, we got to see a lot more because um, the majority of the community is still not doing some of the things that are high impact, like network monitoring. Just the ability to look into your network traffic should should be a pretty nascent capability. And that's not as widespread as, as we'd like to see it. But when you get to that stage, that's that's the beautiful thing is you can absolutely see it. We don't we don't need 
And I see some marketing and stuff around this. They're like, we're going to use artificial intelligence to identify attackers. I'm like, you don't need that. You need visibility and a good analyst. Like this isn't, this isn't the novel, oh my gosh, we'll never see the same thing twice kind of stories we were told as kids. This is human adversaries rummaging around in an environment they don't understand, trying to stay stealthy, but still doing things that you can pick up on. And a good analyst with good level of visibility and sort of focus can absolutely do it. So I, that's, that's where I get super optimistic. I listened to a Rob Joyce talk at the Enigma conference where he talked about uh, uh, nation state adversaries and adversaries with resources and motivation to get into certain places will get in because they know your infrastructure more than you do. They know the products you're using and how it works better than the people that even made those products. So, for instance, uh, nation state might understand a Siemens PLC better than Siemens themselves. How does a defender stand a chance when... Uh, uh, someone who should know is telling you that this is the reality. Yeah, I... Do you agree with that assessment, uh, by the way? I agree with Rob and a lot of things. I actually just like, I don't get political. I don't really care about politics. I, I try to advise both sides of the aisles when I go down to DC. But Rob was definitely one of those people that I was sad to see go. <laughs> he was perfect for that position. I thought it was but, one um, of the best talks I've seen. In, it, it was from 2016. I just mentioned he, it on a podcast last uh, a couple of days ago with someone. It's like one of those... Here's it from the horse's mouth. It's kind of like the things you already know or you already assume, but hearing it kind of puts it in perspective and it's pretty sobering uh, when he Absolutely. says when he says things like that. But again, how does a defender stand a chance when uh, a, a nation-state adversary knows everything about your infrastructure and the products you're using better than you and the people who made those products? Yeah, so I'll break this into two, two categories, one for OT and one for IT. On, on the industrial side of the house, even if they understand that Siemens controller better than Siemens, they're not going to know your industrial process better than, than you can. Now, if you don't take advantage of it, if you don't learn your environment, if you don't put some you know, monitoring in place, if you don't do anything, then of course you're going to get circles run around you, right? Like a lot of effort by an adversary in the early stages is doing what a good defender should have done already, which is learning the environment. Um, so, so yes, you're going to get circles run around you if you don't do anything. But pound for pound, if you invest in the problem, I think the defender actually has an upper hand. On IT security-wise, it's it's more scalable for sure for an adversary. So it's definitely more difficult. But I would say that anybody that looks at this community and honestly thinks that the offense is out innovating the defenders need to look again. We're seeing advancements in IT security that are pushing the community forward where an adversary simply cannot do what they did years and years ago the you don't you don't get the magical i mean it's not common to get the magical exploit that gets you root authentication a lateral movement across the entire network now it's a chain of exploits um the it's it's not the i'm going to run circles around the entire defenders it's oh okay well they're doing centralized logging damn i better think through this so i i think that rob is correct in that there are a class of adversaries that are the tier one operators that are, if they come after you, it's going to be a big fight and you better be ready for it. Um, but I still think it's doable, but there's also everybody else underneath that, that are not the tier one operators. Well, it's China. Okay. Well, China has a lot of teams. Russia has a lot of teams. The U S has a lot of teams. Not everyone's top tier. You know, th there's these opportunities to disrupt. Some of it goes into simply, you know, understanding things like analytical coverage. Um, if I walk into any security operations center in any enterprise environment and just ask to look at their detection, 
I would wager a bet that 60 to 70% of their detections are based off command and control because of signal to noise ratio. Okay, if the adversary does something super novel in command and control, then I miss them. I need analytical coverage. I need to make sure that I, I can detect reliably at every different phase of an adversary's effect so that I don't get sideswiped in one. And so I, I still think that it's definitely doable, but, but I agree with Rob. I, you know, I, I don't talk about it too often, but I spent a portion of my career on the offense as well, not, not doing red teams and stuff, but being somebody else's adversary um, for U.S. Cyber Command. And at no point in my day did I think to myself, like, hmm, how am I going to use a capability or, or do something that's going to impress the defender? Like, that wasn't my job. My job was to do the you know, six the missions mission in front of me a day that I had. And yeah, get on with my life. And so there, there was no, there's no desire to be fancy. It's you use the tools that you have to for the job. And as defenders keep raising that bar, it actually is considerably difficult for adversaries. I just think that defenders are telling both sides of the stories. We hear a lot of defenders stand on stage who have never been on offense, red team or otherwise, and tell the community, oh, yeah, yeah, it's super, super, super easy to be an adversary. And like, dude, what are you talking about? Like, what, what would you know about this? So I, I, I don't know. I don't want to come off as, as, as snarky about it, but I would say that we are a little bit self-defeating as a community. And to be honest, things are going great. We're, we've got a ton of ground to cover. And you can, for every optimistic thing I can say, somebody can throw out something else and, and converse to it. But as a community, we're moving forward in an amazing way. Uh, I hate to harken back to uh, Black Hat talks and some of the things you just referenced. But one of the things I hear a lot is like, uh, you know, think about building it right from the beginning. Well, in these in these in environments, one you you can't. They've, they're legacy systems built for a, a different time, and even ripping and replacing those things are so costly. Like you, you're talking two three million dollars to rip out something and put it in. That's a that's a non-starter. And when you hear people giving advice about how critical infrastructure should be handled, and they talk about you know uh, architecture and, and making sure it's, it's built properly and, and put these mitigations in place. In many cases, that's not, that's not realistic at all. How do, would you as an expert in this advise, uh, how, what, what's like the number one recommendation for, you know, ensuring robustness and, and efficiencies, uh, to stop potentially, you know, people dying attacks. Yeah, I, I do think a lot of it is good engineering, but you're right. You can't just rely on that and you can't rip and replace. Uh, I would say, though, for what we do know is helpful or what we're learning from threats and sort of taking that intelligence-driven approach, we do need to make sure we, we put it into engineering so that not only from a software and technology perspective, but true engineering of our process that we as a community move forward in smart ways, um, which it may not be the power plant we have today or the manufacturing side of the refinery we have today, but you know, we, we want to learn and move the needle forward for the plant we're going to inherit in 10 years. Uh, there's, there's some things that are being done in the community that give me a lot of concern about, uh, you know, a process automation controller that's running windows. Well, if its job is to open and close circuit breakers, does it really also need to be able to run MS paint and solitaire? You know I mean? We're, we're sometimes putting too much into our systems and we could reduce the information tax base, but sometimes we're also taking shortcuts in engineering um, the process itself that we shouldn't do. So we, we do need to address that as well. But to your point, say you have an existing facility. Um, my number one thing is always to say, invest in your people. Uh, good security people, good people that have trained up and, and have bridged the culture between IT and OT are going to be worth everything that you pay for them. 
and help you make the right choices for your environment. But outside of that and, and otherwise not dodging the question, I would say I like centralized logging. I like network visibility. I like reliable threat detection mechanism. And I like some level of segmentation. And then I like uh, for folks to have some level of response plan and ability to enact change in the environment if they need to. If they generally have those four or five things, they're going to be OK. Um, you can always do more, but there's a diminishing return on investment at some point. And at a minimum, segmentation with change configuration, with centralized logging and network monitoring, um, you're, you're going to be in a really good place. In the IT space, as you know, there's an ongoing discussion about the value of uh, uh, attribution. Uh, do you mm-hmm. think it's different yeah. in it's different in your space, in the ICS space, in the industrial space, where attribution and paying attention to who the adversary is, what their TTPs are, how you know their capabilities, uh, doing threat hunting in your network based on attribution information is 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 it different? from uh, that world and the IT world? And uh, are you seeing a lot of uh, defenders in industrial space uh, paying close attention to attribution? Yeah, so attribution can be broken up into a couple different classes. If we talk about actor attribution, we might say, you know, fuzzy panda or, or whatever, or APC 28, I guess, you know, campaign or activity group attribution, I'm okay with. In other words, identifying intrusions, analyzing them, and, and identifying that it's a similar or same group and then classifying it under some stupid name. Sure. Right, but um, know that's who they awesome. are. But, but when you talk about true attribution, that this is Iranian operator so-and-so, or this is even Iran, I, I actually think it's bad. I, I, I don't like that at all. I'm completely on the opposite side of the spectrum where I say that not only is attribution not useful for you from a defender perspective, but it can be harmful because everybody has bias. And if my defender has heard that China steals intellectual property, they're going to look for intellectual property theft. They've heard Russia is cybercrime and military preparation. U.S. is counterterrorism kind of, you know, contact chaining. Uh, uh, Brazilian is more cybercrime. You know, they, they bring this bias into investigations based off what they've heard. When in reality, every nation state out there that's a player in this space does everything. Intellectual property theft, military, counterterrorism, they, they all do it all. So... To me, if you tell true attribution to a defender, it biases the way that they look at the investigation or the data, and they might come to a conclusion or, or objective a lot slower even, or even, even inaccurately so. But what does help, and this is where you uh, sort of got to be careful, what does help is a prioritization of what you look for. Or if we think that we're in you know, tense times with Iran right now, of course, people would want to prioritize Iranian-based threats. But I think there is a better way to do that. You don't need to know that it's Iran to prioritize them because you don't even necessarily know what that word means. Like, it's Iran. Well, what does that mean to me? What, what we've always done in the past, which is a place I think more of the security community should go to, is building an intelligence model. To me... What does a North Korean state threat look like? Like, what, what is my intelligence model of something or someone operating in the North Korean state interests? And if that team I'm looking at fits that profile, that intelligence model of operating the interests of the North Korean state, then I can prioritize them in times of tense times, like U.S. and North Korea relations, and I can prioritize them into my threat model and, and hunt off of those tradecraft. And... I will find that actor or, or be well prepared against it. But it doesn't actually matter if they're North Korean or Syrian. But the problem if is I that attribution doesn't model. exist. Do what? That level of attribution doesn't exist today. Yeah, I, I think people are taking shortcuts because people aren't building, they're not building intelligence models. You know, a lot of the 
one of the downsides for the threat intelligence community is a lot of what we call threat intelligence today is indicators and malware analysis dossiers. And those aren't threat intel. Like indicators aren't threat intel. Um, more of operational level kind of focusing on adversary or activity groups and the tradecraft they exhibit and building an intelligence model about your adversaries and giving actual assessments. That's real threat intelligence. And, and so you're right. I, I, I don't think many people are actually building intelligence models. They're just saying, this is China. China likes intellectual property theft. And if you care about China, you should prioritize this group. And I think it's very uh, flippant and I think it's very misleading and, and it can have real impact. And in the world of industrial controls, it can also have real, real geopolitical tension. Um, if you blame Russia for the attack on a power grid and you're not actually sure, you can, you can talk about state level geopolitical conflict at that point. Where do you stand on active defense? Let's say we just talked about these stages, stage one, information gathering. You know you've identified an actor in your network. You know they've pilfered XXX number of documents and that's sitting on a server, a C2 somewhere, and you, can, uh, you, you have the technical capabilities to go get it, but that might be illegal. Is that how you um, uh, define active defense? And where do you stand on... on, on whether a company or or an organization should invest in in that quote unquote hacking back. Yeah, great question. Um, so I don't define that as active defense. Active defense is a old school military term, long before the word cyber, and it was always about understanding things like indications and warnings, and having a flexible mobile force to push the adversary out of your environment. And and I've had countless uh, Twitter scholar you know, messaged me, well, Sun Tzu said active defense is, you know, going back and taking the offensive against the adversary. Yeah, but Sun Tzu was was taking place during the Second Sino-Japanese War, Sino-Japanese War, and he was talking about Japanese invaders into China, and his version of active defense was don't stand in a line and just shoot each other. Why don't we just be mobile instead, figure out where they're attacking and push them out of China? Sun Tzu's uh, uh, oh my gosh! I'm I'm sorry. Not Sun Tzu. <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, okay, so let's 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 get around. Now. Let's get around the the definitions argument. So in your yeah, but your view, the active defense is yeah, active but, defense but, is um, just to, hunting. To the point. Yeah, to to the point. It was never about that. And and apologize as well. It was Mal. But but to to the point. No one no one that's ever used the word active defense militarily has ever talked about actually going on the offense. So what happened? Because I do think this is important for your question. What happened that, that confused the information security community is, I think it was in the late 90s, it might have been early 2000s, the U.S. Air Force wanted to talk about doing offense, but couldn't say that they had cyber offense capabilities because it was classified at the time. And so a general came out and talked publicly and said, oh, we're doing more of an active defense. And so when it came out what they were doing, people thought active defense meant hack back. Anyways, I don't subscribe to that definition. Active defense to me is things like threat hunting, instant response, monitoring your network. It's the human component of defense, of being flexible and mobile in your environment. To your question about, well, regardless of what we call it, which it really is just hacking back, can and should we go and pull down information off the servers? I actually don't think you should. Now, but if, the, I, if if my blueprint is sitting on a on, on oh, a C two somewhere I know, and I and 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 I know it's I can pop it. There's an interface that allows me to pop it. Why can't I just go grab my documents and? Yeah, because well, there's a couple of reasons. One, uh, and, and a lot of this, by the way, is usually like the one percent of the community that could pull that off effectively, and we all feel comfortable talking about it. But you're talking about the entirety of the community. 
Um, and I would say that more people than not are going to screw that up. And I've seen it happen multiple, multiple times, but, but forget if we divide out the community and let's just stay focused and I'll say, regardless, it's never so simple. And well, they stole my blueprints. Can't I go get it back? No, your, your adversary is not just leaving everything on a command and control server. Like they'll either pull back the data. Um, even if you see it on one server, it doesn't mean they haven't copied it off. doesn't mean that they don't have cloud storage and that your blueprints are everywhere by now. Um, but but even in a, a perfect scenario where everything's gone smoothly and perfectly, the problem is once you go outside of your network, you're dealing with other players out there. We have seen more of this hack back crap, disrupt FBI, Interpol, you know, um, it, various operations getting disrupted from wannabe hack back, you know, uh, actors trying to get back their data or otherwise disrupting adversaries. It has real impact. And, and so... I don't see the the benefit in doing it when we've we've seen it consistently be abused and consistently harmful. Now I do know, and it's a dirty secret where it's not really that secret if you ask around enough. But I absolutely understand that most of your antivirus companies do that. Like it's it's a kind of well known statement that most of your antivirus companies are have got some people that can go back and pull down files and data off command and control servers to help identify victims and things like that. I just wish that we had a better process where a security company or, or others could work with law enforcement to do something effective and deconflict. But I think many people in the community are held back by the fact that our, our governments around the world are not necessarily up to speed with the information security community. And so that process is overly bureaucratic and, and mundane and, and it's, it's frustrating. But to answer your question, no, I don't think you should do it. I think it has a lot of impact um, beyond just your network. And I think it's a bad precedent to set. And honestly, for a company trying to get and invest in security, what actually pops these companies usually is not knowing their environment or not doing good security management. It's not that they didn't have an offensive team. If, if, if you suck at defense, you're going to suck at offense. Get, get the basics done. Get the next step done. By the end of the, the pendulum, you know, talk to me about offense, but if I can walk into your network and you don't actually have good asset identification and centralized logging and so forth, I don't even want to hear about the hackback stuff. Uh, and and this asset management, asset identification, just discovering what you have sitting there that needs to pay attention to this 30% of the super uh, dangerous things is kind of what we call the basics, the basic security hygiene that you're arguing. Pay attention, focus on that and not worry about getting into this um, you know, concept of hacking back. And then there, there are all kinds of legalities around it as well that you don't want to get yourself mm -hmm. caught up in. Well, absolutely. And, and, and just because you do the basics doesn't mean you're okay. And we've seen some, there was some posting on social media about this a while ago where, and I, and I agreed, I think it was like Dimitri and, and Baitlick and a couple others came out and said, look, I keep seeing these government statistics. Oh, it was the NSA who started it. And the NSA came out and said, oh, well, in the last, you know, 18 months, nobody's used a zero day against us. If you do cyber hygiene, you'll be okay. And that's, that's a really stupid statement because, you know, it's good to know that nobody's using a zero day against you, but it's not that they, they didn't, it's that they didn't need to. <laughs> so right, the right. moment I that thought, you do yeah. cyber hygiene, then of course the adversary is going to step it up. And so if the adversary doesn't have to throw anything good at you, it says more about you than it does about the adversary. I gotta. I let you go. I got two last questions. Uh, do Do you expect to see uh, a ramping up of regulations and government uh, uh, 
forcing uh, industrial players to do certain things? Are we going to see some noise around uh, government regulation in the space? Yeah, by by far. I mean, I I when I go down and talk to congressional members and staffers, it's one of the first questions they have is like, well, we should regulate this. And I try to talk them off the ledge as much as possible because oftentimes they don't know what they want to regulate. They just want to do something. And, and so that's not going to be helpful. And another problem with this is, and quite honestly, it, it comes down to the fact that nobody wants to be the congressional, uh, you know, congressional group or federal authority or state authority or whoever that doesn't do something. So if, if, if you think about it, if your regulators decided not to pass new regulation because they saw the industry was overregulated and they want to give them a chance to be innovative and then a cyber attack happens, it looks like they were weak on infrastructure. And so it was their fault. Right. A lot that's of a political to conundrum that applies to everything. Yeah, so, it's, so I see regulation coming. It's uh, To me, I think it's unavoidable, but I'm, I'm, I try to get involved as much as possible to make sure we have as smart of regulation as we can, although I'm just not really a regulation fan writ large. Last question. Uh, we we talked about the usual suspects: Iran, China, the ones that are in the headlines. Are there any other uh, adversaries, nation-state adversaries, that are being underestimated? Uh, are you seeing activity coming out of places that, hmm, these guys too? Uh, North Korea, for instance, maybe Turkey. Some are, are there. Are there adversaries in places that haven't yet made the headlines? And is that something we should worry about at all? Yeah, I think so. So we're, I mean, there's one team we're tracking as an example that's a Central African state. Um, so there, there's definitely people that don't that don't make the news. Um, but I would say most, when we go back to that 320 number of like activity groups across the world, most of your activity groups, most of your adversaries are more regionally focused. You know, why don't we hear more about the Pakistani APT? Because we're not an Indian energy company. So th- there's a geopolitical nature to some of this. And, and in the same way, when you know we're starting to see a Chinese security community really get its, its stuff together, when we start seeing a Chinese threat intelligence community, you guarantee that you're going to hear about all sorts of new threat actors, as well as U.S., Russia, and others that have gone sort of more unnoticed in those environments and that data set. Um, so I, I, I think that there's way more than people realize. We have an extreme Western bias on what we view as the threats. Uh... Thank you very much, Robert. This is the spot where you get the plug. I know I asked you in the beginning, what is Dragos? What do you guys do? And your marketing people hasn't properly trained you because you still didn't do nah. the sales pitch. Um, it's fine. I, most, I imagine you don't even know what we do. Yeah, but I imagine you, you, you're selling all these security monitoring tools, uh, some sort of yeah. uh, dashboard or some sort of monitoring system in addition to the services. Um, what exactly do you do? What exactly? What is your? Yeah, what, what do you see as your sweet spot? Yeah, thanks. I, I think I try to push away from being a salesman and vendor so much that it's actually the other direction frustrating for people. Yeah, so we, we have three teams. We have an intelligence team that puts out intelligence reports and insights on the threats for industrial. We have a, a services team that does instant response, threat hunting, kind of pen testing for industrial. And then we have our technology team that, that sort of takes the insights from both of those. Think of it like a ICS sort of SIM analytics and response framework. So really just threat detection and response, technology services and intel as it relates to industrial we just do industrial yep thank you very much robert appreciated it uh one day we'll have to do it again because i have a list of (laughs) things here i haven't asked you about and we're already heading up into one hour mark so yeah we'll we'll grab a beer and we'll do it in person (laughs) thank you very much take care